Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Hinkle Party takes power. Meanwhile, the Jewish soldier, ex-barber, veteran of the World War, suffered a loss of memory and remained an inmate of the soldier's hospital for many years. He was ignorant of the profound change that had come over to mania. Hinkle, the dictator, ruled the nation with an iron fist. Under the new emblem of the double cross, liberty was banished. Free speech was suppressed, and only the voice of Hinkle was heard. Yesterday, Tomania was down, but today she has risen. I love how you're just being stared down this whole time <laughs> by this cat. Like, <laughs> done. Yeah. Are we, are we done here, dude? So I'm going to throw no. you for six, and I'm just going to say hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Awards Don't Matter. Uh, on this particular episode, I'm my name, Andrew Pierce. I'm joined by Dave. We're going to be discussing Charlie Chaplin films. Uh, usually now see Dave's Dave's got this thing he's like and if you start with a good day that means that it's good film <laughs> no it just means you're excited you've got energy that's all it means I love that you started this episode with like on this episode my name is Andrew Pierce as if it would be different on another episode I, I like that I like the, the mystery involved it's good it's all very good yeah yeah so welcome Dave thanks for joining me to discuss um, uh, comedy Hitler yeah, yeah, yeah. Comedy is about Hitler. I think that's exactly what I posted. Like, thanks to Andrew, I'm watching a comedy about Hitler. Um, so uh, I think there's only one or two of those, right? There can't be that many uh, comedies about Hitler. Like, Hitler shows up in comedies as a source of mockery. But this is, like, about Hitler, like, very clearly. So it's a, it's a little bit different. Even though his name isn't mentioned at all. Um, but yeah, this is The Great Dictator. And part of the reason why we're discussing it is because um, Charlie Chaplin, as great a director, is an actor and person, well, not less so a person, you know, just like Hitchcock, he had his own problems as well. Um, but as an a- actor and a director, he uh, really is quite a, a powerful person in, in film history. And yet he didn't have that many... Um, you know, dalliances, I guess, with the Oscars. Uh, this is his Best Picture nominated mm-hmm. film here. Uh, he wasn't nominated for Best Director, but he was also nominated for Best Actor here. Um, and this is effectively, you know, obviously this came out in 1940. And um, it's pretty impressive that he managed to write a film that uh, 
feels so pointedly aware of, of the future uh, and aware of what mm. is to come. Uh, because this is a political satire film about um, a guy, a Jewish private soldier who uh, doesn't have a name, but he effectively um, saves another soldier and they uh, have a fate that is kind of entwined in some ways. Um, but that's not really the main plot. This Jewish soldier, 20 years after World War One, uh, ends up back in kind of this town, in this ghetto with a whole bunch of other Jewish people. And meanwhile, uh, there is a tyrannical, um, terrible dictator called Adenoid Hinkle, uh, which is a fantastic name, also played by Chaplin. And he is effectively, mm -hmm. um, he is effectively Hitler. And, you know, the two kind of look the same. Uh, and that's part of the comedy of this particular film. Uh, this is my first watch for this particular film. Was it your first watch as well? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's uh, it, the only thing I knew about it going in was one that it was a satire about Hitler, and then I'd heard that the final speech in the movie is like kind of one for the record books. Like that's that's the the thing that people really pull from this. But it's also like I mean, you know, not that we should be surprised because it's Charlie Chaplin, but man, this movie's really fucking funny. Like, like laugh out loud bits here. And one of the things I thought of as I was watching this is like, man, Mel Brooks must love this movie. Like, there's so many bits in here that I'm like, oh, this is a, I could see Mel Brooks doing this exact thing in one of his movies. Um, and I find it interesting that we, I think over the years have denigrated comedy uh, and don't take it, it sounds weird to say, but don't take it seriously when it comes to awards, when it comes to stuff like this. Um, but if you mention the name Charlie Chaplin, people are like, oh, Charlie Chaplin. Yes, that's a very, very good, very, <laughs> very amazing filmmaker. But then you, you know, mention a filmmaker like Mel Brooks, like, oh, very silly. Uh, you know, we don't have to really pay attention to the lessons in his movies. But Chaplin, maybe because of how old it is uh, and because it started in silent film area. And that was one thing that I actually, as I started this, I I didn't do any research on it. And I had no idea um, whether this was like a silent film or not, because I'd heard the last monologue is important, but like I'd never heard it. So I was like, uh, how does that work? Because I think of Charlie Chaplin, I think of silent film. Um, so for this not to be that was kind of a shock to the system as I as I started to watch it, but you adjust very quickly. And it's it's so impressive that because silent film is a very different art form uh, than the talkies. Like it's just a whole different stylistic choice with acting, with directing, with framing, all that stuff. And he just like, you know, he's just kind of a master at all of it. Like, yeah, he, he, he effort, effortlessly silent, blends the two. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, cause that, that first sequence in the plane where they're upside down with the, with the water is gold. It's so funny. Like it, and it doesn't overstay its welcome. It does like just enough. And then you end the bit. Um, but that felt like silent film stuff. Right. But then, you know, you have, you know, the flirtation uh, between the male and female lead characters. You've got, of course, the monologue at the end and the discussions between the leaders, which is like brilliant uh brilliant voice acting stuff um and doesn't ever really suffer from feeling like oh yeah he's definitely a silent film actor like he's just got such presence in this movie that you never you never really think about that. yeah yeah exactly and he as i said he blends the two to, together perfectly those opening sequences are really quite um fascinating and hilarious as well um but it also you know as he 
cements his life back in uh, normalcy in the ghetto where he is a barber. And, you know, the, the, the moments where he um, tries to give people haircuts and stuff like that are quite amusing. And, you know, you may cringe. Yeah, he tries to give her a shave. Yeah. That's a great moment. Yeah. And I love, I really love that moment because it could have been played for like buffoonery, but I love the fact that they both take a pause and then they both laugh together. Uh, it's such a sweet, sweet moment, you know, like, and all that stuff really, really works. It is quite charming in that regard. Um, and of course, you know, uh, I'm loath to bring it up, but it, it's clear, uh, we mentioned in the last episode, the impact of Rebecca on Guillermo del Toro, but, you know, the impact of a film like The Great Dictator, though that kind of sequence um, is clearly homage in Paddington 2 out of all films like I'm sorry to bring Ooh. it up but it's like but yeah. there, there are moments you know uh, just like in um, modern times and stuff like that there, there is a that kind of um, impactful comedy that uh, is there and you know I'm reading news this morning that um, Death Rogan is his next film is going to be inspired by uh, Charlie Chaplin and um, Buster Keaton and stuff like that and focusing more on the physical hijinks and things because there is a there's an artistry to that. There's a comedy uh, that is, it feels so, it feels like a pratfall um, because it is a pratfall, but also as well, it is falling with style. It's graceful. You know, it's, it's balletic in a way. And, right. you know, Chaplin manages to carry that across these two characters that he plays so perfectly. And mm-hmm. specifically, there's a moment here where, it's the one scene that I had seen from The Great Dictator before um, in a capsule in a way uh, where effectively Hinkle in this really quite um, beautiful and charming sweet little moment uh, is kicking and bouncing a globe, <laughs> you know, and in that moment you think it's quite sweet and charming. But then when you think about it as well, you know, you have a dictator who is literally playing around and kicking the world like it's a toy yeah, it's a megalomaniac yeah. like it's a, it's a comedic like it's uh, nothing. symbolic version of that it's it's incredible i think my probably my favorite recurring bit in this movie is the, him going in to have his uh, portrait painted yep uh and he always gives up like nine <laughs> seconds and then he's out the door these guys are always like god damn it yeah. again like <laughs> it's amazing there's so many good bits and i think um when I was watching the movie and thought of Mel Brooks was the scene where the Mussolini character, I think his name is Benzino Napolini, which is uh, <laughs> not real far from Mussolini, uh, his arrival and them like essentially bringing out the red carpet and it keeps going too far and they keep running back and forth to try and get this decorum right. Like that stuff really, really works for me. And I, this is, this movie is proof that you can satirize some of the most evil men in history and have it take the piss out of them and not um, not pump them up in any way. No cost, Napoleoni shall not invade Austerlitz. That country belongs to me. At this meeting, we shall not discuss the Austerlitz situation. This interview is solely to impress upon him the force of your personality. Hmm. To make him feel your superiority. Here. This man, Napoleoni, is aggressive, domineering. Before we make our demands, we must put him in his place. Precisely, but how? By means of applied psychology. In other words, by making him feel inferior. This can be done in many subtle ways. For instance, at this interview, I have so arranged it that he will always be looking up at you. You looking down at him. At all times, his position will be inferior. Mm, excellent. 
Then again, we shall seat him here beside your bust, so that if you relax, that will always be glaring at him. Huh? Oh. Where is he now? Resting. When he arrives, I have arranged that he shall enter from the far end of the room. Another psychological triumph. He will have the embarrassment of walking the entire length of the floor toward you. <laughs> Very good. Yes. His Excellency Signor Napoloni is now leaving his room. He's coming. He's coming. Quick. Give me a flower. A flower. Remember, at all times you must be above him before him. Entering or leaving, you must be first. Hello, Hickey. Bigots, bigots. <laughs> How do you feel? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Ah, my brother dictates. You're a nice little man, Hickey. I'm so glad to see you again. <laughs> Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, he was interviewed about this, Chaplin was, and he said, like, if I had known that things were as bad as they were, I never would have made this movie. Because it's hard to joke about when you find out what's being done in the concentration camps. You're like, because they had no idea the extent. Because at this point, when this movie was being filmed, uh, we were still at peace um, during World War II. Like, we hadn't, we hadn't entered the fray yet. So it does, you know, so maybe he felt a little bit more freedom to, like, take the piss out of these guys, because, like, you didn't really know how murderous and how uh, you didn't know about the experimentation and the, the death camps and all this stuff. It's probably harder to go after them when you find out about the stuff, because, like, how do I joke about this in a way that's not disrespectful? But I'm so glad he did, because this is, like, the great, maybe the greatest takedown of an evil man in the history of film. Like, this is just phenomenally done. Like, just... It's just the right amount because they don't make him out to be a complete buffoon, but enough that you're like, oh, this guy, I can't wait for him to get his um, because they play it like he's he's an idiot. Right. And he he doesn't really have the power that he thinks he is. I like that. He's like he's shorter than just about everybody in this movie. Um, and he's constantly kind of pushed around, especially by the Mussolini character like that stuff is fantastic but, but that's such a hard balance to to manage as well like presenting a dictator as an idiot um because they're, they're clearly not um they're clearly not lacking uh, some kind of methodical mindset that got them to where they are there is a they have a a mentality that is is driven by hate driven by fear and driven by xenophobia and anti-Semitism and things like that. And that doesn't come from a, um, you know, it doesn't come from a mind that basically is stupid or dumb. But Chaplin manages to make Hinkle quite a dumb, pathetic person. And mm -hmm. I, I think that... I don't love this film as much as everybody else does. Um, I felt for the most part that I felt that the balance of trying to get the, you know, the balance of understanding the present moment was there. But then because we have so much history, because we have so much understanding of what happened in World War Two, it's really hard to marry up the, the horror of what was to come with what's actually in the film. And, a lot of that is done in those last five minutes with that speech. A lot of that is kind oh, of, you know... so good. Yeah. And that's oh, a masterpiece so moment. It's a brilliant moment, right? But yeah. Yeah. everything leading up to that feels 
a little bit jokey in a manner that kind of undercuts everything just a little bit. And I thought that for the mm. most part that, um, you know, he's pre- prevent presenting some kind of normalcy as a way of like, this is what we're fighting for. You know, this, you know, being able to uh, muck around and have some fun in a barbershop and, you know, spending time with friends and things like that is what we're fighting for, right? I understand that. Mm-hmm. But on the same mm-hmm. hand, this film is so long that when it gets to those kinds of final, final moments, um, it feels like it just kind of dusts its hands off. And I wish that Chaplin had maybe taken an extra 10 minutes after that speech to show us the fallout of what happened. I know this mm. is a fantasy, um, but effectively what happens is that, you know, this, this private officer uh, manages to find himself in the place of Hinkle and, you know, delivers this powerful speech and then all of a sudden the war is off and it's all done and dusted. And, you know, it, it feels nice and pat because it is nice and pat, but I just wish that I'd seen just a little bit more after mm. that just to see because it feels like it feels like everything's just gone back to normal when it clearly wouldn't mm. have because the threat and the violence is still there from the people who believe this one person we see so many people uh you know there are multiple dictators in this film and it feels it feels like a comedy show because it is a comedy show of course um but it's a comedy show grounded in seriousness and you know, I, I can't help but think of something like Vice, which almost works in the same kind of level. Like, there, there is a level of truth to Vice, of course, because it is based on reality. But Adam McKay pulls from the same kind of strains as Charlie Chaplin does, where he's trying to make these real figures farcical and for us to laugh at them. And we're supposed to laugh at George Bush. We're supposed to laugh at Dick Cheney. And we do because, you know, the performances, I, I thought, in that particular film were pretty funny. But it's hard to br- separate the reality there and the, the seriousness of what's happening and the seriousness of, of what these people are fighting for. Um, did you find that at all yourself or, you know? I, so I let, just, me, yeah. let, let me speak to that. So one, I think one of the things you're talking about is just how hard satire is to do. Um, it's, oh, yeah. you know, there's, there's a really difficult balance and it's not going to work for everybody. Um, so yeah, it is jokey. Um, it's designed to be, and I also think you have to try to remember to put this in the context of when this movie came out. Um, it's very easy for us to look back and like, we know the awful things that were done because people believed in Adolf Hitler. Um, but this was maybe the first time, especially in American history, that we had seen people follow someone this evil um, without question. So I think this movie – I think if you had this same speech now, like if this was never written and you made a, a satire about another world leader, say one with an orange hue, um, and you put this in there, I think people might roll their eyes because now we know. We know what has been done because, you know, people are brought along by a charismatic leader. But, like, I'm, I'm actually, like, looking at the speech right now. And, like, it's, it's one of the few speeches in film that has, like, brought me to tears. Like, I oh, was yeah. watching this. And, like, it's just – it's so impactful. Like, this, this one little bit of it I really like. He's talking about how, you know, our, our greed has poisoned us. Um, 
And he says, our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and will be lost. And this is like lines like this. It's like, wow, like it just makes you really think about how impactful films can be because that that could not be more true uh, about how we spend our time building these machines um, that are originally designed to bring us closer and they actually end up pulling us apart. Um, And that is true now uh, just as well, just as well as it was back then. And especially given the fact that we did not, when this movie was made, did not realize the extent um, of the, the horrific damage that was being done to humanity, uh, by, by Adolf Hitler and by all of his followers. I think it's, I think I can forgive, uh, the movie for not understanding that. Um, the other thing to bring up really is that in, I'm glad there wasn't anything after this. I'm glad there wasn't 10 or 15 minutes more because I think it, I, I think it waters down the message. Like this is a message movie, even though, even though it's a comedy, this is this is the entire movie is building up to this speech. It, it feels very much to me like he wrote this amazing piece and was like, all right, now I got to build a movie to get here. I yeah, gotta, that's I gotta what find I find a way to of, get yeah. to this, you know. So I think if you continue this after this and you kind of show the impact of it, I think it like lessens the impact. This is a rousing speech to leave your audience with. This is what he wants people to learn about the world around them, because it. The the only thing that that stops evil dictators isn't isn't necessarily armies, right? It isn't the firepower. You need that in a situation like this. But the reason that firepower was eventually brought along is that there was outrage and people saw what was going on and they knew it was evil and they stood up and told their leaders that we need to do something about this. We can't just sit and let this happen. And this is what he's talking about. Is that, you know, we can't be just victims of this system. We have to, like, stand up and be heard. And it's so powerful. As I was watching this, like, I couldn't help but think of now. To think of everything that's gone on, especially in the United States, in the last, you know, four to eight years. And be like, and that's essentially what happened here. Is that people saw evil. And they stood up. And they and they rioted in the streets. Because this is wrong. Right? Is, is, is who we have, is the system we have solved? Absolutely not. Are cops still killing unarmed black people? Yes. Uh, do we still have uh, politicians who are doing terrible things? Absolutely we do. But we, we, we cleared one hurdle, right? And it is a lifelong effort. There, I do not think that I, on the day I die, things will be solved. No. They won't. And, and, and you have and, to be okay with that. You have yeah. to be able to stand up in the moment and say, what I'm seeing right now is wrong and we need to do better. And we need to be more human. And we need more connection. So for this to be I – mean, it's, it's a little depressing to watch this and realize how how much it applies now all these decades later. You know, like this is what, 1940? Uh, it is 2020 now. So, you know, 80, 81 years later. Uh, and it's still like, yeah, we still need that. We're still cynical. We still need to be drawn together by our humanity. You know, and it, 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 sickingly enough, you brought up fucking Paddington too, And like, you know, this whole like, be kind and nice and the world will be right or whatever it is. Like that's, I mean, this is saying the same thing. Yeah, right? exactly. Is that we yeah. need to be kind. We need to feel. We need to care for our brothers and sisters out there in the world, regardless of color 
or creed. We have to care that people are dying and people are suffering. And if we don't, then we're all going to suffer if we don't reach out and help one another. I, I think that's really important to to carry on to with this particular film because, you know, one of the most notable aspects is that Chaplin knew what the power of the podium was because he both saw it in Hitler, but he also knew what the power of cinema is. You know, it, it's uh-huh. it, it is a, a direct means to be able to get a message out to people. It is a direct means to be able to influence people. And I guess there is no film, you know, more. Um, that, that typifies what it means to be an influence on people and to inform and, and to change people's minds than something like The Great Dictator. It, it is a pure empathy machine. It is a pure understanding yeah. of what happens. And I think that one of the genius things that Chaplin did was portraying both the villain and the hero in this particular film because it shows mm-hmm. how close they are together and how close they are as two human beings and, and the line between being, you know, a terrible, not saying that we all have a dictator hiding inside ourselves. That's not <laughs> what I'm trying to say, but you know, the, the, the line between being an awful, heinous, terrible human being and being somebody who is nice and empathetic and caring for other people is pretty close. You know, it, it is pretty oh. close. And it's on us to ensure that we stay on the right side of that. Um, and I think that one of the powerful things about The Great Dictator is that, you know, Chaplin, as a filmmaker, saw what was coming and knew that the only way that he could be able to do stuff was to make a film about it. And, you know, I'm sure that he, he did other things as well, but, you know, effectively showing what the rise of uh, fascism and you know, uh, having a group of people fighting against that in a film is probably one of the most um, effective things that he could have done as a filmmaker to be able to say what is coming is terrible, heinous, and we must do something about it. And mm-hmm. um, yep. that in itself makes this a very important film. It really does. Right. Um, and it, in a manner, it kind of feels like when I logged it on Letterboxd, I was like... You know, it's a film like The Great Dictator where you sit there and go, yeah, this whole rating system feels trite. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so so important and impactful that you're like, oh, well, four stars or five stars. Exactly. And I'm glad you brought up this idea of how close these two characters are. I was just reading um, there was a, a memoir called My Father Charlie Chaplin that his son wrote. Um, and he wrote, their destinies were poles apart, speaking of Chaplin and Hitler. Uh, one was to make millions weep while the other was to set the whole world laughing. Dad would never think of Hitler without a shudder, half of horror, half of fascination. Just think, he would say uneasily, he's the madman, I'm the comic, but it could have been the other way around. Like, it's like, you know, they were, I guess they had like really similar backgrounds. They were born like four days apart. Like, you know, it's just like where... Where you were, where you lived, where you were raised, who was around you has an impact because, like, obviously, Hitler, one of the most evil men, people in history. There's no arguing that fact. But he was also a part of Germany, who, after the First World War, was utterly decimated. Like, no one had any money. No one could survive. The country was lower than dirt. So he comes along and allows them to blame someone else. And it's a human reaction. 
It's not a human reaction to take that blame and start concentration camps and do medical experiments on people. But the idea of a scapegoat, there's a reason a scapegoat is a literary feature of every country, every artist, every time in in human history, because it's easier than taking a look at the complexity of everything around us. So, you know, there's a reason this stuff was so easy to happen, just like in the United States. You know, people talk about, you know, racism and economic uh, inequality being two of the big reasons that Trump came to power. Right. It's easier if you can blame someone else and you can look back on a past that was so great, even though none of us were around to see it. And the past was only great if you were male and white. Who cares about any of that? But like if you have an easy, easy someone or something to blame, then people go along with it because people are scared. People are angry. People are poor. People are struggling. And we want someone to blame. And it it really does, as you mentioned, rightly go to the power of the spoken word. Uh, but it's uh, a film like this is so great because it it brings hope, right? Because the idea of this is if if you have someone else in that same spot to say the right thing at the right time, you could change the hearts and minds of millions, right? He talks about you know the telephone and the radio bringing us all closer together, and that's the reason so many of you can can hear my voice right now. And to me, that's that's Chaplin talking about the movies. Right. The reason you're all listening to me is because I'm an actor and I'm a director and I have access to you because of all this technology. And I'm going to use that to tell you that we are all humans and we should all be together. and We should all be banding together instead of fighting one another. Humor heightens our survival and preserves our sanity. These are the words of Charlie Chaplin. So are these written over 30 years ago. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without those qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. Humor and humanity, the abiding elements of Chaplin's artistic conscience and his unparalleled talent as as actor, writer, director, producer, composer, and to quote W.C. Fields, the greatest ballet dancer that ever lived. Chaplin has become more than a name. It is a word in the vocabulary of films. And anyone who has ever seen a movie is in his debt. A few years ago, Mr. Chaplin said, my only enemy is time. We respectfully disagree. For wherever and whenever there is communication, a screen and an audience, whether here on earth and now, or in some unfathomable future on some faraway star. Time is Charlie Chaplin's dearest and eternal friend. And what an amazing, powerful, wonderful message for Chaplin to give to all these people. I mean, this was the second highest grossing film of that year. So many people heard this. So many people took this to heart. And it's like that. I mean, not to be like too dramatic about it, but this is why stuff like this is why I love movies, right? That, Someone you've never met, someone who's been dead for decades, you can watch a movie and be not only emotionally impacted, but impacted in a way where you start thinking about the choices that you're making in your own life and in the world around you. That something filmed in like 1938, (laughs) in 2021, you can be like, 
oh man, I really need to think about the choices I'm making and what I'm putting out in the world and my attitude towards people less fortunate than me. Like I, you know, if you honestly, like if you are a person who didn't give a shit about Black Lives Matter and, and you listen to the speech, I don't know how you can't connect these two. I don't know how you can't connect the idea of bonding together as people and treating everyone as human and with kindness and with empathy. I don't know how you can't take that from this movie. And it's like, Honestly, I could have despised the rest of the movie, and if it has this speech, this is at least a three- or four-star movie just on the strength of that last ten minutes. Like, all the other stuff is great, and it's funny, and it's wonderful, but, like, this is, like, this is up there with, like, the best speeches ever to be recorded on film. Like, I I can't, like, I'd, I'd have to seriously think about it to think about better moments of monologue on, on screen. Like, this is just tremendous. Yeah, yeah. It lost the Oscar to The Great McGinty by Preston Sturgis, by the way, just out of, <laughs> for best original screenplay. Like, we're all Jesus remembering Christ. that particular film. Um, the Great what? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, look, it is it is powerful in a lot of ways. Uh, I, think, I think I find it hard to... Uh, I need to revisit this down the line because... Uh, I found myself really conflicted watching this particular film. I I thought it was really powerful, really important and and brilliant. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I also felt it was a little bit overlong, Um, but it was also hard to shake the shadow of stuff like, I mean, we talk about Mel Brooks and he won an Oscar for the producers writing the screenplay for that. So, you know, there is a manner and an ability to marry comedy with Hitler and it be very successful. Um, both mm-hmm. creatively and, and, you know, financially, of course. Um, but then you have somebody like, you know, Roberto Benigni, who decades and decades later would eventually win an Oscar for uh, acting and, you know, having been nominated for Best Picture as well, um, for Life is Beautiful, where, you know, it's been a long time since I've seen that film, but my memory of it is that he tries to blend the comedy of something like the Great Dictator, and not not to the same level that Chaplin does, but he tries to blend but like in, that... the, in the midst of like actual concentration camp. Exactly, like this is, this is yeah. the difference. Where Chaplin He's literally you know, clowning around, going on, <laughs> and this is like, oh god, yeah, life is beautiful. Is a that's a rough one. Like I, it's one of those where like you see what he was going for, uh, but there's some stuff in there where I'm like, that is in poor taste. Whereas this, with the context, I'm like, okay, you know. I, I get it. And I, I think it's also interesting that he got the idea to make this film uh, after watching Triumph of the Will, uh, which is maybe the most famous uh, propaganda film of all time, directed by Riefenstahl. Um, and I guess a bunch of other directors saw it and they were like so horrified. Mm. And uh, <laughs> and uh, Chaplin watched it and just thought it was the funniest shit he'd ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> like He was like, this fucking jackass, I can do this. Watch this. And then he wrote The Great Dictator. Uh, so, so there's that. And I'd much rather watch this than Triumph of the Will. I'm not not putting myself through that. No, look, I mean, yeah, I've seen Triumph of the Will a long time ago. And, um, you know, uh, look, uh, I, I, I do cringe when people who are like, I'm going to watch... 50 films directed by women this year and then Triumph of the Will happens to be one of them. It's like, no, you had a choice. <laughs> no, don't do that. so many options. Don't, don't do that. It's like, it's like, well, I want to watch movies about race. Like, okay, let's watch D.W. Griffith movies. Like, no, there's, there's better, there's better options. Yeah. You don't need to do that. Let's, yeah. let's walk away. Exactly. Yeah. But, <laughs> but with, I mean, with Life is Beautiful, like, obviously it's not Triumph of the Will, but on the same hand, there is a, 
it, it just highlights how difficult and impossible it can be um, to blend comedy with extreme horror and extreme violence and extreme real violence and terror. And I know that there is criticism as well uh, directed at uh, Benini for that particular film because he wasn't Jewish. And I'm not sure if Chaplin was Jewish or not, but, um, you know, at least he delivers the great dictator in a respectful manner, uh, in a manner that feels inclusive. And it feels like, you know, we are embracing everybody at once. And that's the important thing. Um, I, I think this is a really good film. It is obviously an important film uh i i again i'm so glad that um rebecca won best picture but you know i can't see i i can see the different future that we would have had if something like the great dictator would have won because while rebecca is a great film um as has so often been uh shown uh, throughout Oscar history, they do enjoy message films. And this is probably one mm-hmm. of the most prime message films around. Uh, as we've talked about multiple times, that particular speech is just downright important. <laughs> like, it's it's important in itself. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of wish that that had won because of that particular, um, the meaning behind it and the importance behind it. But, you know, on the same hand, I'm, I would have been disappointed if Rebecca had lost um, because it's great. It's a, it's a must. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're honestly like to me, they're both five star films. So like I would be, I would be fine, fine with either one. Um, yeah. And I just feel like it's interesting. The, the idea of a message film, because a lot of times I cringe uh, at message films. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh God, it's so heavy handed. And this is heavy-handed, of course. Like it's like a ten-minute speech at the end about what we should do with our lives and how we should function in the world and getting closer together and having empathy. But it works. It's just so well written and yeah. so engaging. Um, so it's like I think the fact that it it spends the entire movie building up to that. Like the rest of it's comedy, and there's like little moments of like you know, especially within in the ghetto. Uh, with the, with the barber and the female lead, there's moments of like, wow, this is really messed up. What's going on here? But he saves all of the pontificating for this one moment, um, and it all it's also a brilliant uh, a brilliant showing of like you know right place right time. You know you get you know that character had every chance to like not speak or speak vaguely about things but instead he took this opportunity to do the right thing and it's kind of a lesson in like for all of us that we all have the opportunity to speak we all have a voice we all and like he said and all the technology we have the ability to talk to people around the world and to say what we think and what we feel and what we believe and we have to do that like there is no there's no time like the present and there's no time more important than now to talk about these things. But I think one of the important things as well is that for Chaplin's main character, he, um, and as has been shown with Rebecca and the great dictator, it kind of doesn't matter what the characters' names are because um, it's clear that they don't care to name them themselves, but it's okay. Um, but he is clearly somebody who is self-reflecting throughout the whole entire film. And we see him self-reflect throughout the whole entire film. We see him sit there and go, what about this? And what about that? And, it makes sense then that when he's thrust into 
a moment of action that he has to say all this stuff because it's literally everything that has been building up this brick wall in his mind and it's hard to escape. And I think that's really an important thing that, you know, it sounds so, it sounds so trite and silly to say, oh, you must think about yourself or you must have some self-reflection or you must, because it seems like something that everybody should do or everybody should already be doing. Mm. But, but not everybody hand, does. Not everybody does, you know, and I think that's, it, it is worthwhile repeating that we need to look at ourselves and go, okay, how did I end up in this moment? And especially, you know, if we're talking about things like Black Lives Matter and stuff like that, we're two white guys. You know, one of the key things is, um, you know, in Australia as well, like we have major issues with um, the, the government and the treatment of Indigenous people in Australia. And they are treated terribly. And yet one of the things that continually happens is we have white people injecting ourselves into conversations because we think we know best. One of the important things is to have a little bit of self-reflection and go, geez, maybe my voice isn't needed right now. Maybe I need to step back and not say something. And I think that this particular film just reinforces that. It is it is going to be a timeless film. You know, I don't know what the state of cinema is going to be like in 100 years' time, but I imagine that just like the works of Shakespeare, um, something like The Great Dictator, even if it's just this speech remains, will still mm-hmm. be important, will still carry weight and still carry value. And that in itself is... It's a sign of a, a great work of art. It's a sign of... Um, you know, something that is better or more important than just being a film, you know, than just being mm-hmm. entertainment. And that in itself is, it's inescapable. Um, it's, again, why we watch films. Uh, it's why we do these yeah. kinds of things. And it's why, you know, it's why I enjoy going through and watching these particular Best Picture nominees and winners because we touch on these kinds of films every so often. And it's it's just... It, it, it reminds that there is a little bit of importance to these kinds of things, um, even though, you know, there's a lot of shit films that have won or, or that have been nominated. Uh, there is an importance to the ones that were nominated and we deserve to to remember them and recall them. And, you know, not just because they were nominated for Best Picture. There's so many great films that weren't nominated, of course, as we've said time and time again. But this label elevates it just that little bit more. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's important. It matters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. I think if, if you're comparing it to Shakespeare and saying that people are going to be listening to this in a hundred years, I think it's fair to say it matters. I think. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with everything you just said. Absolutely. So, yeah, I guess, uh, do you have anything else you want to add about this besides the fact that you, you are now a changed person? Uh, the person I mean, I think, in front I think, of me. <laughs> I think the only thing to add is that uh, Andrew's a terrible person because uh, he, you know, he was like, "It's okay." Uh, I guess <laughs> I gave it's it three fine. and a half stars. Three yeah. and a half. Oh God, you're killing me. But you're right. I mean, <laughs> you know, you kind of talked about like rating a film like this feels very silly. It feels like, it redundant. Just feels so... Yeah, you absolutely. Know, and and like, you know, I I I guess when it comes to rating films on Letterbox, like I do it because. You know, it, it is nice to kind of go, this is how I felt in the moment. This is how mm-hmm. I felt when I watched the particular film. But 
you know, our emotions change of, of films as we go along and our emotions, yeah. our memories change of it because they become part of us, you know, and especially it, it's even more important with a film like The Great Dictator where it, it literally does that speech will ring in our heads for so long because it does become part of us. It does become part of who we are. And it becomes, if, if, it's, if the film has done its job properly, then it will inform you and, and encourage you to be a better person. And mm-hmm. I think that's what matters. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agreed. So uh, what are we talking about uh, next time? We're talking about Citizen Kane, right? That's what won uh, that year? Right? What's Citizen Kane? No, we're going to watch Mank yeah. instead. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, I mean don't tempt me I will I'll do it <laughs> <laughs> um, How Green Was My Valley well How Green Was My Valley yeah um, yeah we're gonna find out mark? Andrew actually it's more of a statement isn't it it's it's a statement How it Green is. Was My Valley it is a statement yeah yep just one more fucking John Ford movie here we <laughs> here we go I've never seen this one uh, I am looking forward to it um the next year is quite a stacked year, and uh, it's, you know, yes, of course, Citizen Kane lost Best Picture. Um, good Uh These things happen. Um, we are not going to be doing an episode on Citizen Kane because you already know it's an important film. You already know it's great. Right. I'm going to rewatch it, of course, uh, because why not? It's Citizen Kane. Um, but, you know, you don't need to hear us talking about it. Um, I'm sure that Dave's talked about it in the past sometime. Probably. <laughs> I mean, I think it's maybe the most, it's got to be like in terms, especially in terms of film podcasts, like maybe the most talked about movie ever. Like, it's just like, you know, it's, it's known as one of the like five best movies ever made by pretty much everybody. So like, what can we, what am I going to say that's new about Citizen Kane? Like, uh, you know, let's, let's move on to something else. So what are we, so we're going to do How Green Was My Valley. What was our bonus episode for this year? Have Suspicion. we, have we decided? We did. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. Fantastic. We get to talk about suspicion. That makes me happy. Uh, yeah. So that'll be uh, our, our double, our, our two episodes coming up. How Green Was My Valley and Suspicion. Fuck Citizen Kane. No one cares about that movie. No. And I'm really glad about this year as well, because it's finally forcing me to watch things like The Maltese Falcon, which I've never seen. So, you know, I get to watch Excellent. another good film. Uh, apparently it's a good film. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, but yeah. That will be on our next episode of Awards Don't Matter. Uh, Awards Don't Pod on Twitter. Um, Dave, where can people find you as well? Uh, just follow me uh, at Darn That Dave, and you can find my you know nineteen podcasts on there, and I'll uh, post some links so you can hear more of me if you want to. Have you spawned any new podcasts since we last just talked? Uh, there's one in uh, in planning stages, uh, so <laughs> we'll see. There's always another one. always 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 yep okay cool no worries all right we'll we'll see you on the next episode and uh yeah take care i'm sorry but i don't want to be an emperor that's not my business i don't want to rule or conquer anyone i should like to help everyone if possible jew gentile black man white we all want to help one another human beings are like that we want to live by each other's happiness not by each other's misery we don't want to hate and despise one another In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. 
Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then, in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world, that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. It's game day at Raising Canes. If you want to order like a champ, it's the action off the field you need to focus on. The only play you're running is chicken. So what combo are you picking? Make it a perfect season. We've got tailgates of hand-battered, cooked-to-order chicken fingers and cane sauce and jugs of freshly made tea and lemonade. All available to order online or on our app. This season is about to be unbeatable. Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers, one love. (laughs) 